The following podcast is for healthcare professionals only. All views expressed belong to our speakers and don't necessarily reflect those of Nestle Health Science. Hello and welcome to Inside Medical Nutrition Podcast, a podcast powered by Nestle Health Science and hosted by me, Dr. Nia Patel. Today's episode is part of a career support series, and I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Dimitris Kutakidis, Senior Research Fellow at the University of Oxford. Hi, Dimitris. It's fantastic to have you on the podcast. And today's podcast is all about um, talking to dietitians who work in research. So just to kick off, it would be fantastic if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself, um, where you're based and what your current role is. Three questions in there, uh, but perhaps start with um, a little bit more about yourself. Thank you, Linia. It's very nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Dimitris. I'm a senior research fellow at the University of Oxford at the Northern Department of Primary Care Health Sciences. I'm a dietitian by background, and my research is focusing on finding and testing weight loss programs for the treatment of non-alcoholic fat liver disease. Okay, we're definitely going to talk a lot more about that. Yeah. Um, so um, if we just go back, so did you go straight into research or did you work clinically as a dietitian first? So I did my undergrad in dietetics in Greece. And after that, I came to, uh, to London for a master's. And during that, I had a very interesting master's project looking at fruit and vegetable intake in children and how this is associated with the fruit and vegetable intake of their parents. Uh, So that got me thinking, oh, I want to do a little bit more research and so on. And I was very lucky to be accepted for a PhD uh, straight after my master's. So I continued with the PhD and then, yeah, carried on with research after that. No, fantastic. So did we go back to your master's? So I'm assuming that if parents ate fruit and vegetables, their children were more likely to eat fruit and vegetables, right? (laughs) Um, And um, so your focus initially was on kind of diet and behavioral science. Is that right? Yes, that's true. And I think it it, it still remains exactly the same. It's uh, I've always found that this is the biggest nut to crack, how we can try to influence people's behavior for good and help them have a healthier diet. And if this is the right thing for them and if this is going to actually help them improve their disease or manage their disease. Uh, So it has now shifted a little bit towards the disease side at the moment, but it always has this core focus of uh, trying to see how we can help them change their behavior. No, fantastic. Um, So what was your PhD in? Was it in the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or did you do something? It it, it was completely different. Uh, Back then, I developed and tested a health eating and physical activity program uh, for women who have finished treatment for endometrial cancer. Uh, So it was all about uh, trying to think how we can support people who have finished treatment for cancer, uh, take on the next step and improve their quality of life. Okay. And what did you find? So what, else, what we found was that uh, this program was uh, acceptable and helpful to people, and uh, most of them improved their diet, and it seemed that it might be improving their quality of life as well. It was a small study, so everything was fairly preliminary at the moment, but uh, it did show quite a good promise. 
Yeah, no, fantastic. And now your interest is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So what projects are you currently working on now? So at the moment, I am running two trials, uh, which uh, look at the effect of intensive uh, weight loss programs in people who have established uh, liver disease. Uh, so essentially what we're testing is uh, low energy total diet replacement programs where we ask people to replace their foods uh, with soup shakes and bars that uh, we provide to them uh, for a set period of time and then after that, they slowly start uh, building healthier eating habits with the support of the dietitian. And what we want to see is whether this very rapid weight loss is, first of all, a safe thing to do from a liver point of view. Okay. And then if that's the case, if it is also a helpful and effective thing to see if this actually improves the disease. Okay. So the liver disease um, that we're referring to, it's related to obesity, right? And we know yes. that obviously obesity yes. is on the rise. And so as a result of that, we're seeing more of this uh, non-fatty liver disease. Yes, that's true. Okay. You know, interesting. Yes. And then yes. what's your other project on? So uh, so both of these trials are in the spectrum of uh, alcohol, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So we have one project which looks at um, moderately advanced liver disease and one that looks at fairly advanced liver disease. So we want to see at each of these stages of the disease as the disease progresses, whether the, uh, whether the weight loss is safe and effective, because we do know that it is probably quite a good thing if it is very early on during the disease mm. stage but as the disease progresses we don't as of yet know if it is a good thing or not okay with my kind of a neurodietitian too so with dietitian to dietitian practical hat on people working on the ground perhaps working with obesity i mean how are they mm -hmm. going to know whether someone has got this level of uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or an advanced stage and um, what are the telltale things that dietitians perhaps working in this area need to start looking out for um, from the research you've also um, um, you're doing at the moment how can they start adapting that into the practice that they're doing uh, the work that they're doing so uh, it is something that is typically uh, diagnosed incidentally uh, so people don't typically have symptoms for it and it's just that they happen to have an ultrasound or a blood test for X, Y, or Z other reason. And based on that, um, oh, the liver also pops up as a, as a problem. And then people go through series of investigations through their GPs and through the liver doctors. And this is how they end up uh, being diagnosed uh, with, uh, with a condition. Uh, but what we typically... Uh, seems to be uh, what the clinical guidelines at the moment recommend is that all health professionals uh, ask people to uh, do healthier changes in terms of the diet, physical activity, uh, and lose some weight. Uh, the challenge is, uh, as always, how is this actually being implemented in practice? Yeah. Because what we do know from our research is that when people do get support to make the changes and to lose weight, they are much, much more successful than when they're trying to do it alone after somebody has just told them to do so. Yeah. And is there a difference between um, the calorie-restricted diets that you're looking at within your research and just healthy, balanced eating, but just perhaps watching portion sizes? Uh, that's an interesting question. I think that um, 
The big difference that exists is, as you say, on the amount of calories somebody is having. Because oh, so it's a calorie thing. It's not necessarily a food group thing. So it's not about, say, carbohydrates or something like that. It, it's uh, for, for for the fatty liver side of things. It's typically the calorie thing. We haven't oh, seen we haven't we we haven't seen strong evidence that it's specific to a micronutrient or a micronutrient. Uh, so it's typically it's down to the to the calories and. Um, if you can achieve the same amount of uh, calorie restriction, wh- whichever way you can do it, it's mm. prob- it uh, my guess would be that it probably wouldn't necessarily matter much uh, and you will probably going to get the same effect. Okay. And um, remind me in terms of calorie range, is have you found a specific calorie range that seems to be most effective? Uh, not necessarily. But uh, what we have seen is that uh, people who go on a substantially lower calorie um, uh, regime, such as uh, the, the one that we're testing at the moment is 860 calories. And what we for have seen. For both men that, and women. For both men and women. And uh, what we have seen is that people in such strict programs tend to do way much better. Okay. Uh, and how long are they going on these uh, programs for? They're typically three to four months uh, wow. on the on the on the soups and shakes, and then slowly they start reintroducing food. So every it's day. quite every day, yes. So it's it's it's, uh-huh. it's quite it's, it's quite demanding, uh, certainly, and it is it is tough. Uh, but what the people actually say is that they find it much easier than they thought it would be. Okay, so uh, compliance we, we, is actually better than you so think. Co- compliance is very good, and the reason for, uh, what, uh, there are a few reasons for that. I think the first reason is that people are actually losing weight and this really, really motivates them to keep going. Uh, and the products typically are formulated in a way that makes them feel full and and not extremely hungry. Mm. Uh, and of course, they have lots of support throughout this period that keeps them motivated and engaged in the program. Okay. And have you done any research looking at the long-term impact? So we know that the short-term eight weeks makes a massive difference, as you've said in your findings. Um, But what about six months or a year or two years down the line? What happens? So uh, what we see is uh, that up to the point of six weeks, up to the point of six months, uh, people continue to lose weight. Most people continue to lose weight. Uh, Of course, there is quite a bit of variability depending on the person, but on average, we do see that the weight keeps going down by uh, six months. At six months is when we typically stop supporting them because this is when the projects finish or uh, the intervention finishes and the support from the dietitian stops. And after that, we do see a small amount of uh, weight regain uh, at one month and at uh, sorry at one year at two years and at three years based on other trials in the field. Now the the good thing from that is that although there is an expected weight regain, it is much less than what people have expected. And people even at three years down the line haven't actually reached their baseline weight that they started with. They're still probably around uh, six kilos lighter. Okay. I guess the million dollar question, Demetrius, being a dietitian would be, okay, so you found this within your research. So what would your top tips then 
be clinically if you were working within obesity with perhaps patients who had this? Would you change your practice based on what you found? So I think changing practice requires uh, a, a, a lot of different things. And I think many times it, it does start from the top where we're trying to influence the way the guidelines uh, based if our research findings are supporting this. We're trying to see whether the guidelines for the obesity treatment as well as for the fat liver treatment could support uh, the provision of, of, of such programs. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, there has been a huge expansion of, of these types of interventions and programs throughout mm. the NHS at the moment, uh, which uh, seems to be, and, and they do seem to, to be as helpful uh, as, we see, as we see them in trials. Mm-hmm. So I, I would really expect that in a few years' time, this is probably going to be something that uh, people will be using much with much more ease. Yeah. Uh, I, I think at the moment there is a lot of um, caution from uh, uh, which which is understandable because uh, it's not something that is extremely widely available. Something that people have been used to do uh, because what we typically learn. Uh, when we are at university is about portion control, uh, healthy eating, uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, I think having this as something that is new is something that uh, will take a little bit of time for people to get familiar, to get trained to do it, feel confident to deliver it as dietitians. Uh, And then when they do actually see the results, I think most people um, are likely to be uh, convinced about it. Uh, b- before I joined my research group here in Oxford, I was the biggest skeptic of, of, of this, of, of anything beyond uh, the sort of standard health eating dietary yeah. advice. And uh, I think the thing that tipped it for me was, was the data that I saw yeah. and um, seeing this, ma- not only the massive weight losses uh, comparatively with other programs that we have, yeah. uh, but also the improvements in the health status of patients, uh, the qualitative data that people say how much more confident and pleased uh, they were by by achieving uh, by being on this program, um, yeah. and I, I think we do do need the data, and we need we do need to keep having more and more data on um, on this and and many other diet interventions to to see what works and for whom, because clearly there is no program that will work for every Everybody. single person. Yeah. Um, so we do need to offer options to our patients. Yeah, I guess there's two thoughts going on in my mind. I'll talk about the first one, then we talk about yeah, the second yeah. one. The first one would be, I suppose, I, I would be a bit sceptical of the low-calorie diet in terms mm-hmm. of, okay, fine for a short period of time, but isn't there going to be an increased loss in muscle mass? And isn't it then going to affect the metabolic rate, which then on the long term will have an impact? So tell me about that. What are your thoughts? So uh, our data don't suggest uh, that uh, that this is the case. The, the, what they suggest is that the amount of um, fat-free um, fat-free mass loss is about twenty five percent, which is typically exactly the same exactly the as same. with yeah, any other uh, weight loss program, uh, whether you go rapidly or uh, or not. Uh, so I have been very uh, 
relieved to see that uh, yeah, because no, you, 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 you do come with it with a question in your head, uh, how is it going to be? But actually, the majority of the weight loss that you lose is fat, is fat mass. Interesting. And then I guess also, because I'm, I'm from public health and your, your expertise is behavioral sciences. So the big question for me is, okay, this has to be sustainable in the long term. And sure. a lot of perhaps the interventions that we see um, within primary care, perhaps that are very extreme are great, achieve the results, get all mm-hmm. the, the markers mm-hmm. that we want medically down. But after a while, because we haven't had the behavior change, the weight creeps back up. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? So I think I think there are uh, two points here. I think the first point is that we probably have to see weight loss and weight loss maintenance as two different entities where okay. we probably need different. We need to practice different behaviors. Oh, interesting. It's, it, it seems what the data suggests is that diet is very much important for very important for weight loss, way more important than physical activity. Uh, But it might be that we need a bit of both for weight loss maintenance. So uh, we probably have to think of different behavioral strategies for for, for the two different points. And the, the other point is that I think we have to think a little bit about how of uh, how much intervention uh, how, how much intervention time and how much support we give uh, to the people because um i think it's a little bit unrealistic to have a three month or a six month program or a one year program and expect that things are going to be entirely different 10 years down the line when you think of things like medication for type 2 diabetes, for hypertension, for dyslipidemia. They are not things that you take for three months and then your heart is improved for 10 or 15 years. It's something that you have to do for a very long time. So what this means is that we probably do need programs that provide support from dietitians from for a much longer period of time. Of course, this it does come with a cost and it does come with a substantial force of people, if you like. Um, but it probably is necessary for what, when we're looking at something that is such a long-term uh, issue. Yeah, no, I love it. I love the fact that we need to separate it out. It's uh, weight loss, achieving weight loss needs an intervention where it's more dietary focused because there's a saying, um, abs are made in the kitchen, not in the gym. <laughs> And then actually, in terms of maintenance, looking at perhaps the physical activity and the diet, and then looking at the perfect optimal touch points, which perhaps a dietitian could be involved in as well. Um, And it would be amazing if we can, as you say, get that implemented more in kind of current uh, guidelines so that um, we have that support, which I think in my mind, that would be an effective way of putting interventions into practice. So we've talked a lot about your research and I could keep talking about it, but I actually want to talk about your job in general. So um, how do you find the research world? You're clearly very passionate about it. Is it all enjoyment? I think it's mostly enjoyment. I think otherwise, uh, yeah, I think I should I should have found another job. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, uh, it certainly comes with a lot of moments of uh, of rejection uh, because 
the majority of our time, uh, or a very good chunk of it at least, is uh, applying for funding and mm. writing grant applications. And 90% of those are being rejected for X, Y, or Z reason. So it is, it is a job that you do need to cultivate a thick skin as you go along um, and be able to yeah, withstand this rejection, not only for the grant applications, but also for the papers that you're publishing and, and, mm, and so and on and so forth. Different researchers yes. having different yeah. st- different theories and thoughts yeah. and things like that. Okay. Exactly. So I guess that's what keeps you up at night is this the grant applications that you're constantly trying to apply yeah. for? Um, and my little baby girl. <laughs> oh, yes. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, certainly the grant application side of things and uh, how we can find more more effective ways to influence uh, policy and research and what's essentially the next big idea. Mm, mm. Um, and then what, how have you toughened your skin? Because, you know, coming up from being a dietitian, we get the, more or less the same training. And I guess then going into a world that is research is very different to what we, we were trained in. How have mm. you found that evolution? How have you prepared yourself? And what have you had to um, learn um, to make sure that you are being successful at what, at what you do? Uh, I, I'm not sure how much I have changed in this sort of sense, but... Uh, I think it's all of it, it is about reminding yourself that this is part of the game yeah. uh, uh, and you have to come and accept that the rejection is part of the game because um, otherwise it, 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 it is very hard and you can always take it very personally uh, because you put your blood, your sweat and your tears into all sorts of all, all, all these kind of grant applications and papers and so on and so forth. And then somebody says, no, that's not good. Um, So I think that's the one. Uh, The second bit is that I have been very fortunate to be able to be supported for a substantial amount of time. And um, because I was on a five-year postdoc, so this gave me... uh, the opportunity to uh, it afford me the opportunity to be able to be rejected many many times and not have the the typical six months or uh, one year contract. So I think I was I, I was lucky from that sense. And perhaps the third one, uh, which is probably uh, as important as the other two, is having the support uh, both at home and professionally here to. Uh, to cheer you up and, and make you keep going. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and what exciting research projects have you got um, ahead of you in the future? The, I think that the exciting bits are, uh, at, we, we, have, we have talked about projects in cirrhosis and in fatty liver disease, uh, which are currently ongoing, and hopefully they will have quite exciting data. And if, if that will be the case, we do plan to have uh, quite... Uh, making the case for for much bigger trials and trying to influence uh, much uh, a, a much bigger proportion of the population in, in a good way, hopefully. Uh, the other very interesting project that we have in mind at the moment is looking back at my cancer days, if you like, mm. and uh, trying to see how we can help people uh, who are due to have surgery uh, for cancer uh, with a diet intervention. 
Okay. Is that any types of cancer or specific? Uh, not specific to... to bowel cancer. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. That's yeah, super yeah, exciting. Yeah, Looking yeah, forward to yeah. getting, seeing those yes. publications. I'll look out for hopefully, them. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so what, if, if, you could, if we, our listeners are wanting to get involved in research or perhaps um, look at taking a more academic career, mm-hmm. what top tips would you have? Uh, I think the first top tip would be get in touch. Uh, with whoever academic uh, you want uh, for an academic in a in a topic that you are interested in Mm. in following Uh, I think this is how it started with me uh, by cold emailing professors that were doing very interesting work from what I thought was interesting and uh, nine times out of ten nine times out of ten you do get they're plan. receptive. Yeah, especially uh, now with social uh, media. Exactly, exactly. Um, so definitely get in touch. Uh, if if you work in a, in a hospital setting or through the NHS, there are typically quite a lot of opportunities at the moment for allied health professionals to do research placements, uh, a little bit of research training, and, and all these kind of things always help you explore if this is the right thing for you and mm. if you if, if you like that kind of job so mm. so it's about giving it a go uh, and then I guess the third one comes back to persevering and yeah uh, if things don't work out the first time just try a little bit more yeah, because yeah. I suppose you're always learning. And yeah. I guess yes. you, you see it within one research grant wasn't um, accepted, then you learn from, from it for the next one. Absolutely, absolutely. You're absolutely right. It's a huge learning opportunity. You learn, uh, even by, by the rejection, you have learned so much in the process that you can then apply to the next one much more quick much more quickly and much more efficiently and yeah that's that's a win exactly well you're definitely in a career that is exciting and one that where you're constantly learning um i'm very excited to to see um what comes out of all the research you're doing and then more importantly how that gets put into guidelines um, and how that changes practice of dietitians so really inspiring really wonderful talking to you dimitris thank you so much for your time thank you for having me Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Medical Nutrition. If you enjoyed the podcast and found the content useful, please share it with your colleagues and consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. For more information on this topic or to share your feedback, please visit the Nestle Health Science N Plus Hub or click on the link in the show notes.